questions. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for coming. This is exciting, and we're happy to share with you. Um, first of all, I'd like to introduce, I think I know most of you, but I'll introduce myself to start. So I, I'm a nurse that's worked here for 22 years in ambulatory, and I'm excited as can be about what's happening in ambulatory now, and part of the interdisciplinary rounds is just one example of uh, what I think is, is going really well in healthcare today. Um, I'll start by introducing Linnell uh, <coughs> Chenowiski. Okay. And Linnell J. J. And she is a resource specialist that works with the oncology hematology group. Uh, Wendy Hubbard is an infusion nurse that um, gives chemotherapy in the hema, uh, hematology oncology suite. Anna Schall is a nurse practitioner extraordinaire, of which I know several. Um, and I'm just really thankful to having uh, had the opportunity to work very closely with her for my three and a half years that I worked at the research, uh, the Norris Cotton Cancer Center. And then there's Mark Godier, and probably you all know him, but he's also uh, extraordinaire, and I was thrilled and honored to have the opportunity to work with him. He specializes in leukemia and um, elderly, and he's going to bring his knowledge about that today. Um, so we're excited to share with you. One of the things I think is exciting is that we uh, have so much happening in healthcare, so much complexity, and we're all so busy doing our own things from our own disciplinary perspective. I think that sometimes we don't take the time to celebrate or even to just reflect what went well, what didn't go well, what was our part. Um, I think sometimes we just get so caught up in, and so busy doing our work that we just don't take the important time that we need to take to reflect on our, the care that we provide. And so that's why we're here today. When I asked these colleagues of mine, would you consider doing this? Because I think that we gave some really good care to this amazing woman, and it makes me proud to work at Dartmouth-Hitchcock to be able to give care like I feel like we gave this woman. And of course, they're like, OK. <laughs> Um, so it's an opportunity. I hope that this will catch on. I hope that I will hear from many of you. Um, I know there's a lot of really good care that goes on at Dartmouth-Hitchcock everywhere. We just don't hear about it enough. We don't share it enough. And I, I think this is a great opportunity to do that. And it's just what, we'll, what we will do. Uh, we're going to share with you our story about a woman that we met a couple years ago. She's passed away about two years ago, but she's a woman that I think about pretty much every day. She touched my life, and um, I'm honored to have cared for her. And um, if she were with us now, I feel like she would totally endorse this quote. She may have even written it. Um, and it really was our, priv our privilege as healthcare providers to take care of her, to be a part in her journey. Um, and we're going to each share with you a little bit of our roles as, as we took care of her. Her name was Louisa, and Louisa would fully endorse this quote. <clears throat> These may look familiar to you all. Uh, this is why we're here. This is our mission, vision values at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. And um, they're, they're not just words. Um, they're our core values. They're why we're here. They're why many of us entered healthcare. We came to work here because we want to take care of people. We want to make a difference. We want to connect. And uh, 
we get so caught up, as I was saying, in our task, in our job, in our standards. Um, the connection is something I, I encourage us when we're challenging, when we're challenged to measure our worth and our value, that we not, not lose sight of these words. Um, they're not so hard to, they're not so easy to measure, but you know them when you see them. And I think Louisa would also endorse these values. She was a very strong woman, very determined lady. You didn't mess with her. Um, and she was also very healthy. She was, other than her diagnosis of leukemia, leukemia she was a very, very healthy woman. These also probably look familiar. These are our common purpose, why we're, why we're here. We're, we need to be accountable to our organization. We want our organization to succeed. We want to be able to measure our worth and our value, why we're here. What, what difference do you make? Why should we pay you to work here? What's your outcome? Um, so we don't want to ever lose sight of that. We need to be fiscally responsible. We need to keep all kinds of things in our mind when we go about our day, caring for patients. But again, let's not... I'm challenging us not to lose sight of the value that, that we bring just from having a connection with our patients. So Louisa had values. She valued her, uh, her health. She valued her body, her mind, and her spirit. She was a 75-year-old woman that looked like she was 40. And she was a yoga instructor. And she was beautiful. She had beautiful hair, beautiful teeth, beautiful skin, beautiful posture. So we talk about healthcare and our demands and all that's a, that we face every day, lots of interruptions, standards, regulations, policies. Our, our work is complex. It's very complex. And that's why we need to uh, have our interdisciplinary teams. We all have a place. We're all important in the care we provide to our patients. And our care is complex. And our patients are complex. They bring with us them their own complexities. So Louisa was, like I said, strong, beautiful. She uh, had absolutely no health care for 35 years. Um, she chose no health care. She chose not to have insurance, um, not to have Medicare B. We, we don't know why. I got very close to Louisa, and I never exactly found out why, but I knew that it was important to her that she'd made that decision. And... Um, I total, we all totally respected it, and she, and um, she kept asking always, "What can I do? There's got to be something you can, some pill, some diet, something I can do." So <clears throat> these are just some of the complexities and challenges and standards and policies that I think about throughout my day and time as a nurse here. And I'm only going to speak to one of them, and that is the privilege that I had of being a research nurse. And I don't know what you all know about research nursing, but it's um, it's an honor, really. You're you're a primary nurse for the patient. You you say to your patient, "Call me if you have any symptoms. Call me if you want to start taking an over-the-counter pill. Call me, call me, call me." And um, because we need them to call us, so we can collect the data, so we can check the protocol, so we can make sure that our, the information we're getting from them is good and accurate. And so it offers such a nice opportunity to get to know your patients. Um, 
when you take a day off, you got to get coverage, you got to hand over the coverage to another nurse that knows the protocol, the patient knows you're going away. It's just, I, I often wish all of our patients could get that care. Um, and it gives you time to develop a trust, a therapeutic relationship, which was, I think, especially important for us with Louisa, who had decidedly uh, not wanted a thing to do with health care. So anyway, Louisa. She was great. She was amazing. She had a very witty sense of humor. She was generous. She was kind. She loved music. Um, she loved exercise. She stretched and often would check in with me. Are you running today, Deb? Did you stretch? Did you take those deep breaths? Uh, she was, as I told you, a very determined woman. She, her husband was a pilot and her husband wanted her to have babies with him, and she was, okay, I'll have babies, but you're gonna deliver them. You're gonna learn, read a book and learn how to deliver my babies if you want them. So you see how formidable she was, and you see why she was so likable. <laughs> this is not her, but it could well be. As I told you, she was beautiful. And I just put this up here because it re reminds me a bit of her, but um, when I'm nursing and I'm, I'm always thinking what I have to offer someone, I often think about social determinants of health, like how did you get here? 10% of what we do in healthcare um, is related to genetics, 10% is related to what we do in healthcare, 10% genetics, and the rest is all social economic. So usually I'm able as a nurse to figure out something that's missing, some gap, something I can help with, transportation, understanding your medicine, understanding your illness. I really was challenged with her. She, she had it all. She, she had her master's degree. She got that when she was 50. She was very, very smart, very involved in her community. She had great friends, wonderful family. Um, just a rare quality. I don't often see that in patients. And she would always be wanting every single time we saw her, what can I do to get rid of this leukemia? Give me something I can do. There must be something I can do. <laughs> and this is also not her. I'm sure you've seen this one around. But the other thing I think about is um, motivational interviewing. I spend a lot of time like, what, what do you need as a patient? What are your strengths? What are your... Um, what health behavior do you want to change? How can I help you? What are your barriers? And again, I was challenged with Louisa. There was, she, she had no barriers. She took care of herself. She, she had it all except leukemia. And the last little story I'll tell you about her is that um, I saw her fight throughout the time I knew her. She had fight. She had stamina. You don't mess with her. She was a force to be reckoned with and I felt her, her fight every step of the way. And then the time came when she needed to go on hospice. There were no other options. And I also, I, I met in the infusion suite with her family and, and her, and I, I felt her peace as much as I had felt her fight. And she said, do you know, do you know that song by Bonnie Raitt? Angel from Montgomery, and that's where I'm going to end it for now. I'll, uh, I'll have Dr. Godier come talk to you a bit.
So, so uh, part part of our presentation today is to kind of think about you know the blind man and the elephant and and how many different you know parts of the elephant there are the leg, the trunk, and ear and and if you're just feeling one part of it you you're going to a vision and what we're trying to do is sort of approach this from the different people who are involved in the care of this of this patient and I'll, I'm not going to spend a lot of time but I'm just going to do the traditional sort of doctor approach to to her disease and. Um, but also to kind of put it into context about what she had to face. So this was a 75-year-old woman who had never had any health care you know, for the last 35 years. And in fact, because she was having symptoms of progressive shortness of breath, she called up and made, it, made a new appointment with a new primary care doctor. Said, something wrong, I've been trying to get better myself. And, and so that she went to that appointment, which was her first interaction with the medical system in years. And uh, they sent some routine labs. And, and of course, from a clinic, they didn't get the labs back in that, that day. They got them back that night. And so at the hospital that ran the labs uh, called her uh, and, and told her to come back to the emergency room that evening because her white count was, was 10. Her hemoglobin was quite low at, at 5. But she had the 67% blasts, which are very worrisome for, for leukemia. So she went from no interactions to the medical system to now called back to the emergency room. Um, <clears throat> these are, this isn't her, but this is sort of a, a, a blood film teeming with these sort of more aggressive uh, acute leukemia blasts. This is sort of one of the, one of our medical emergencies that, that we deal with. So she, she gets to the emergency room at her local hospital and gets transferred to Dartmouth overnight. And the next, the very next day gets a bone marrow biopsy um, which is, of course, not a fun procedure, but she uh, confirms that it, she has a diagnosis of AML. Um, <clears throat> AML is, unfortunately, a disease that we, we see a lot, um, but it, it increases quite a bit as people get older. So while the treatments tend to be quite harsh, the majority of people are over the age of 65 or 70, like this graph shows. That's really when it starts to kick in. So it's very hard to treat it in some, of the, in some folks who are, who are older, and that's been a real sort of need is how, how do you tailor therapy for the folks who actually get this disease rather than the, than the younger folks who aren't the ones who commonly get it. And it's a worse disease for older people. So each, each succeeding curve there shows long-term survival based on age decades. So the top one is people who are under the age of 50, and then if you're in, the, in your 50s to mid-60s and as you get older and older, and as we say, she was over, over 75. And so this is pretty much a bad disease for, for somebody in that age range. So we know that. Uh, um, and <clears throat> we, we talk to our patients about what treatment options. Essentially, there's very few. Um, the standard therapy is induction, which is really only done for that younger group. There's a, a drug called decitabine, which we'll look at for a little bit, which is an infusional treatment. And then there are anything that we can think about in clinical trials. And, and she actually opted to participate in one of our clinical trials. And so we'll, we'll talk about that in just a second. But the standard treatment, which is called 7 and 3, is really only just for the younger fit patients. It makes people sick as a dog. They're in the hospital for about five to six weeks with low blood counts, risk of infection, risk of organ toxicity, and really not done for people who are in their 70s or 80s. Um, uh, because your bone marrow doesn't work, you need a lot of transfusions of red cells and platelets, and you require antibiotics to manage the infections, and it's, it's a pretty much of a very difficult uh, time. 
Decidabine is an, a treatment that has gained favor here, and although this doesn't look great, it is better than doing nothing. So median survival moves out, you know, from five months to 7.7 .7 months compared to sort of less aggressive <coughs> treatments. So while that's that's not uh, that's not anything, another way to think about that is more more people are on the tail of the curve. So so now out 12 months, 18 months, 24 months, more you have more people who are still hanging in there doing okay. So even though we're not curing many. Some people are doing okay for a while. So trying to find ways to improve on that is sort of what the research angle has been. She participated in a study that was looking at decidabine, which what we just said, but was combined with a pill. Half the patients got a new experimental pill with the decidabine, half the patients just got the decidabine. She was randomized to just the decidabine, so that, that's what the treatment that she uh, was going to receive. And while I, I didn't, I'm not going to spend a long time, we already know that she, she didn't survive this episode. It's not surprising. But early on, this is what I did here is just put a, a marker for her blasts. This is a curve we can make of how do we did with those acute leukemia blasts. And, and from the time she came in, we were able to sort of get them down to a pretty low level, keep them under control for months and months. Uh, so uh, that, that was going OK. But, but eventually, the disease becomes resistant, as we frequently see. And you can see the blasts start to come up. Uh, we, we tried another therapy very briefly, and it, and it seemed to work for a while. But then ultimately, the leukemic cells become resistant to anything. And essentially, that curve is, is what we are facing in the final days of talking to her about what, what, her, life, uh, you know, what her life expectancy could be. So she had very rapid progression after that. <coughs> so that's kind of the medical background of what, what we had. And, but, but she was a very special person and, and opted for many things that were different than how traditional patients might choose things. And so part of what we want to do with this is sort of flesh out some of her issues along that journey. But that, that was essentially her, her journey through the medical illness part of it. So and I think, Anna, you? So this slide is up here, but my part don't doesn't have slides, but you're welcome to read that and then Anna will continue. Can everybody hear okay? All right. So uh, I'm Linnell. I'm the resource specialist in our cancer center. And uh, to protect Louisa's privacy, I'm not going to go into details about this particular case. But it was important that her research nurse, Deb, knew to contact care management for assistance. Um, the Office of Care Management has social workers, resource specialists, language interpreters, workman's comp specialists, and a lot of other roles throughout Dartmouth-Hitchcock. Um, and. Uh, Care management staff have expertise in identifying barriers to care. And sometimes we can help remove or reduce those barriers. So it's a, if you're not familiar with care management, I encourage you to look into it a little bit and find out what, what does care management do in my particular area. Um, and I'll come back to that with a little disclaimer at the end. Um, but. Uh, for example, social workers can provide uh, psychosocial assessments and support for patients and families. 
and often are connecting them with resources in the community and within Dartmouth-Hitchcock. And just a few examples of those kinds of things. Sometimes there's financial grant money available for patients with some diagnoses. Uh, there are Medicare insurance experts at places called ServiceLink throughout New Hampshire. Some communities have volunteer drivers, and we can help connect people with those. It's really a, a wide variety of resources. And then within Dartmouth-Hitchcock, there are financial counselors. So for example, a patient that does not have insurance coverage, we refer them to financial counselors who can either help them find insurance that they're eligible for or other resources that can help them and not have them have huge bills because they have a sudden illness and medical care needs. And then there are places like the Aging Resource Center across the street at Centera, which is part of Dartmouth-Hitchcock, but um, just a fabulous resource for all sorts of issues for elderly population and younger folks who are dealing with elder care. So for patients that don't have insurance or not enough insurance, uh, resource specialists can help them apply to drug company assistance programs. Um, and if the patient qualifies, it can be a significant uh, cost saving for the patients for the cost of their prescriptions. So again, just a very uh, wide variety of um, help available from care management. My disclaimer is that um, it's important to remember that care management coverage varies across departments at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, and also resources uh, vary across communities. So we can't guarantee that we always have something we can do, but we can guarantee that we'll always do our best to try to help out. Now it's my turn. <laughs> All right. When, um, when Deb first approached me and said, hey, you want to do this thing? And we'll talk about Louisa because she was so wonderful and we all learned so much from her. And I thought, yeah, that would be great. And, and then I started to think about what could I share in Nursing Grand Rounds that's you know, specific to what we do as nurses. And when I think about Louisa and the care that she received at the Cancer Center, I couldn't help but be reminded of the importance of having an underlying nursing theory that helps guide our practice. I think sometimes we get so caught up in the tasks of everyday nursing that we forget about that underlying drive that helps us become the nurses we want to be. Um, the reason I thought about this with Louisa is her case was so uh, it was so special in that she was so incredibly healthy. And like Deb said, she had a lot of resources. She had taken care of herself for decades without intervening Western medicine. She was able to deal with things on her own, and she really didn't need us for anything. And she had such a strong will, and she had such a desire to live and to live well, that it provided a lot of challenges when we're presented with a disease like, like AML. Um, let's see. So when I say nursing theory, some of you out there start to cringe, like, oh, she's not going to talk about nursing theory, because <laughs> I hated nursing theory in school. Um, but 
really, when I think about nursing theory, I think about the relationships that we forge with our patients, because that's what nursing is, right? It's those interactions that we have with our patients, and it's those interactions that make a difference. So I want you guys to think about a good day at work. So what's a good day? So is a good day, your meds got handed out on time, you got every IV the first time you tried, everybody's vitals were stable. That's probably an okay day, I'll take that. But really, if you really think about it, the good days are when you have a special interaction that's meaningful to you as a nurse. And it's a day that you feel like you did make a difference, that you helped somebody through something difficult. It's not always a happy day, but at least it's some, it's some interaction that made a difference. And really, that's, that's nursing theory. So that's thinking about um, our relationships with patients making a difference. So I, I put the little robo-nurse up because I think it's so easy these days with healthcare the way it is and the complexities of it to get so caught up in the tasks. And I'm, I just want to remind everybody that Louisa could care less about the tasks. Right? If you had to stick her twice for an IV, it probably wasn't the end of the world, as long as while you were sitting there, you were having a meaningful interaction. Um, <laughs> one time, Louisa came in, and one of the things when you have acute leukemia and you were treating you as an outpatient is there's a huge risk for infection. So these folks have, have no immune systems. And that's because of the disease and because of the treatment. And so it's our common practice to treat patients prophylactically with triple therapy. So they have antibacterial, antifungal, um, antiviral therapy. And someone who hasn't had health care for 35 years, there's no way she's taking three different medications for something that might happen. So we had many conversations about this. And the team had conversations. And we had conversations with her and her family. And, and we finally came to a compromise where she did agree okay, I will take the antibacterial. I'll take one of them. This seemed like the one that would probably make the most sense, have the biggest difference on her overall morbidity and mortality. So we were really happy with that. But there was a day when she did come in and she had a fever. And when you have a neutropenic fever in the oncology world, the protocol is that you're, you're worked up for infection. So we do your blood cultures and chest x-ray and urine and all of that stuff. And we admit you to the hospital, and we put you on IV antibiotics, and we monitor you for a number of days and make sure that nothing gets out of control. We, you know, working on preventing sepsis. And after a few days, everything's fine, patients go home. So you can imagine with someone like Louisa how difficult it was for me to try to convince her to come inpatient for three days or four days when the best case scenario is this is going to be really boring, where you're going to get poked and prodded and not sleep. And you're going to feel fine, because she felt fine when she came in. Ah, it's just a little fever. I'm OK, because that's how she rolled. Um, and so it, there was this challenge to really you know, getting to know her, having these meaningful interactions. And I think that day it took us conversations in the office, conversations in the infusion room. But she did ultimately decide that, fine, I'll be admitted. And she had an uneventful short stay. But she did not end up in the ICU. She did not end up septic, so that was a win. Um, but if I had just walked into the room not knowing her or her background or where she came from or what made her unique and said, oh, we're going to have to admit you for three days, she would have just hightailed it out of there. Mm -hmm. So I think developing meaningful relationships with our patients is really important, and they do have a long-term a long difference. So the nursing theory that helps me 
um, think about my practice is one called Humanistic Nursing, and it's written by Patterson and Zitterod. And these are two older nurses. This was first published in 1976. So none of this is new information. This has been along, around for a really long time. But basically what humanistic nursing says is that the therapeutic use of ourselves is, is in and of itself the intervention. So having those meaningful relationships and interactions is at the very core nursing. It's really about getting to know somebody and getting to know them well. Think about, does everybody in the room have a nurse that they've worked with that they think, man, she is such a great nurse. She always knows the right thing to say. She never says the wrong thing. She's silent when she needs to be silent. She talks when she needs to talk and she just makes everything look easy. And I think that, picture of that kind of nurse that we all ascribe to be, that's who we all want to be, I think they are ultimately practicing this humanistic nursing. They're taking advantage of the use of themselves. And to be able to do that, they have to know themselves as well as taking the time to know their patients. And as much as nursing loves to take hold of this and like, oh, it's nursing theory, it's all ours, I think really it's anybody who comes across patients in healthcare. So it's Dr. Godier. It's Linnell, it's our secretaries. Our secretary Diane is here today. And I can't tell you how many patients, especially in the complex world of cancer care, who, you know, Diane sits upstairs, the patients never have one-on-one -on -one with her. But I have patients say, can Diane come down? I just want to see what she looks like. <laughs> or we had patient not that long ago send her flowers on Valentine's Day. Like, so, and these are, she doesn't even have face-to-face -face interactions, but even just these telephone interactions can be so meaningful. And so I just, like to challenge all of us to any time we're with any patients, really making an effort to make the interactions as meaningful as possible. So how do you do that? How do you become authentic and get to know yourself and get to know your patients? Well, I would suggest that it's not easy, although Deb will disagree with me and say, oh, you, you guys make it look easy. It's like, well, it's not easy. We're all always trying to do this better. Um, and reflection, looking back at, at what you've done and how your interactions have gone with your patients. And when you have a good day, like how many go home and say, oh, that was such a great day. Like, okay, but we never go the next step. So what made it a good day? Like, do we really think about that and, and celebrate what we did right? And conversely, same thing for those bad days. So what went wrong and what could have I done better? And was I all wrapped up in my own time if I had just sat down and took an extra 10 or 15 minutes with a patient that probably needed it, would that have changed my entire outlook of my day? And if you don't take the time to make those reflections, to really think about it, you just continue to, to carry on as always. And I think as we all try to become better nurses, that taking the time for reflection is really important. And I think Louisa with her meditation and her grace and her ability to interact with people would, would agree with that. And that's a lot of what, of what she helped teach me, and I think Deb as well. She, um, <laughs> there were a lot of stories with Louisa. <laughs> One of my favorites was, I have time, oh yeah, was, um, it was actually, it was, it, was, it was a hard day because her disease, we had pretty much decided that the initial treatment we were using was no longer doing what we asked it to do. So her disease was progressing. And this meant that her time was becoming short. And we were gonna try some other treatments, but I was, 
I was trying to talk to her about her goals and if she had things she wanted to do or places she wanted to go, like what else did she want to get out of life while she could still do it? And she started talking about a birthday party where she wanted to have this party and the family was going to come and it was going to be this great affair. And so I glanced at her chart, I'm like, okay, so that birthday party was in a, it was a few months away. And I was thinking, all right, well, this might be a little optimistic, but it's something we can hope for and something we can talk about. And then she continued to go on about it. And I suddenly realized we are not talking about the same thing. And I look back at the chart and she was talking about a birthday party that was like two or three years in the future, not two or three months. And I was like, oh my gosh. And one of the things that, you know, that I learned from that is, okay, I wasn't as present and mindful as I should have been in that moment. Because knowing Louisa, every single office visit she came to, she wanted us to tell her what she wanted to hear. And what she wanted to hear was that we could cure her disease and that she was going to get better. Every single visit. How much longer do I have to take this medicine? Well, Louisa, as long as it's working, we'll continue taking it. Once this medicine stops working, we don't have any other good treatment options. So every, every time she would ask in a slightly different way, um, you know, how much, what could she do? What can we do? Because she's going to get ahead of this. And um, it, was, it was hard for her to realize that nothing she could do, nothing she could eat, no exercise that she could do was going to make this go away. But she continued to ask, and, she, and she, wanted, she wanted to hear that. I know she did. And unfortunately, we couldn't give it to her. But that day, I gave it to her for a few minutes, right, because we were talking about this party. What she was talking about was years in advance when really I, we were, I was talking months. But luckily, I was able to, after that was over, and we sort of sorted that out and, and came back to some <coughs> mutual goals, um, you know, being able to reflect on that and, oh, gosh, I messed up. How can I do that better next time? And learning from that and, you know, remembering, well, of course, that's what Louisa was talking about, because that's, <laughs> that was, again, that's how she rolled. That was what she did. Um, so I think it's, it's hard to be authentic. I think it's a challenge, but I think it's really at the crux of what we're doing, and making the effort is is worth it. So, you know, with Louisa, we had lots of opportunities to practice humanistic nursing, and I think we had this opportunity with all of our patients. I think we just have to take it. So I would like to end my section here with just this quote from another one of my favorite nursing theorists, good old Florence Nightingale. Nursing is an art, and if it is to be made an art, it requires an exclusive a devotion and as hard a preparation as any painter's or sculptor's work. For what is having to do with dead canvas or cold marble, compared with having to do with the living body, the temple of God's spirit? It is one of the fine arts. I had almost said the finest of the fine arts. And now Wendy. And I don't have slides either, but basically when Deb asked me to be part of this, I um, was honored because I actually was Louisa's nurse on the inpatient unit the day she was diagnosed. And um, as you heard from all of my colleagues, Louisa was a very special person. I remember the day that the doctor came in to give her her diagnosis and tell her what her treatment options were. She was like, no. She refused. She said, I'm going to go home. And like many of our patients in oncology, it's very hard for them to accept their diagnosis. So I stood to the side of her bed, and her husband was there, and her kids were going to be coming 
Um, and it was, it was very hard. But then I went up to the outpatient infusion area and I got to work with Louisa for quite a few of her treatments. And I don't know how many of you have been through the infusion area of, of the cancer center before, but um, it's a pretty special place and we actually become very close to the patients and their families. We feel like they become part of our family. And I know it's hard to go home from work some days and not feel like, you know, take your work home with you. Um, but Louisa was one that, and one of the funniest things, and I actually, when I was asked to do this and talk to some of my coworkers about who we were doing it on, because we all had worked with Louisa, they all laughed. And I remember when she used to come in, she had a Mediport. And the Mediport is a sterile procedure when we access them. And it's obviously, as Anna had alluded to, it, these patients are neutropenic, so they have no, you know, in, the infection rates are, are obviously can be very high. So it's very important that they have a shirt or a, something that they can let us get a good amount of the skin you know, with a chlorhexidine and, and get it really nice and sterile before we access them because it is a central line. And Louisa always wore the most beautiful dress and shoes to all of her appointments. And she, I'll never forget, Carol, who's one of the nurses in the infusion area, it, she would bring, bring Louisa in and she'd look at her and she'd go, oh, Louisa, the dress again? I mean, <laughs> but Louisa always wanted to wear this dress because it was just beautiful and, and she didn't want to look like a sick patient. I mean, she had the, the nylons and the, the pretty dress shoes and she was, she was a really nice person. But anyway, so as you heard from some of my colleagues about her, her treatments, her risk of infection, um, and in the infusion center, we work as a team. So the patients usually come into infusion at the end of their day. So if it's a day where they're, they come in, they come into the access room, they get labs drawn, the labs get sent to the lab, obviously. They go on to their clinic appointment. That might be with Deb, um, in Luis's case, meeting with Anna, meeting with um, Dr. Godier. So they see all of the, the doctors usually up front. Sometimes the dietitian will see the patient in the clinic. And then their last appointment is usually an infusion, and that's where they get their treatment from us. So a lot of times they have such a busy day, they come in, they sit down, we have recliners, we have beds if they needed, um, a bed to lay in. Um, we also have some rooms that are private rooms with beds, and those obviously are reserved for patients that are neutropenic because we don't want to put them out with the public. Um, so we treat our patients with, like, I mean, like with white gloves. I mean, they're just so, um, you know, at risk for everything. So we're just really, really protective of our patients. So a lot of times, too, since we're at the end of the day, a lot of things have gone through their mind throughout the day. So they're sitting there. We might be sitting there talking to them, pushing pre-meds or talking to the family about how they've been feeling and how are things going at home. Have you had any nausea? Are your medicines working okay? And a lot of times they tell us things that they might not have told their other providers during the day. So there's many times that we have to page Deb. In this case, we paged often if Louisa had questions or we had concerns over something that we might have heard that maybe Deb didn't hear. Um, or if it was a, you know, a, an issue that needed um, like Anna's um, attention, we would page her. We have dietitians that come and meet with them at the chair side or bedside. We have um, Social workers like like Linnell come over and or not social worker but their her team 
come over and meet with the patients. We have massage therapists that come to help make the patients feel, you know, comfortable. Um, we, they provide Reiki. So it's kind of a really, con con talking about interdisciplinary, it's really a whole conglomerate of many different things that these patients get in infusion. Um, and as Luis's time, you know, she getting sicker and sicker and she was having um, a, lot of, a lot of bleeding and a lot of, you know, her plates are really low. And, you know, we would put her in a room and we have a couple rooms that we dedicated to, to these patients. <coughs> and from the minute they get into the clinic, if they weren't feeling well, we would bypass the clinic because they shouldn't be out in the clinic waiting area. Um, we would bring them right into one of the private rooms and have the providers come to the, to the bed or chair side to see them there, bedside in, in the case, you know, with a lot of our AML patients, they are um, really at risk for infection. So it's, it's a great place for the patients to really open up. Um, and as I said, the families are welcome to come with them and they're sitting there while they're getting their chemo treatments. Um, you know, we're monitoring, we serve lunch to them, we have snacks. So it really feels nice and it's a, it's a you know, wonderful opportunity for us, as I said, to get to know these patients really well. And I just really feel privileged that I was able to, to be part of Luis's treatment. And um, I think as Deb referenced earlier, um, when she was in, I believe it was room eight, which is one of the rooms we use, um, when Luisa was given, you know, the, the news that she really was about ready to start hospice, and Deb referenced um, the, uh, you're going to hear it. So if we're going to dim the lights, and basically if you can just close your eyes and, and just listen to this, this is it. And there'll be questions
Wow. I think that honors Louisa very well. That was the that was the song that she referenced. Um, hold on here. So at this point, we'll I don't know how to turn the lights on. Hi. Hi. So. Thank you all for coming. I hope you found this helpful. And I, like I said in the beginning, I hope that this will catch on because I think we need to share more of our stories and more of the work that we do. And I would like to say we have special guests in the audience today, and that is Louisa's husband and her daughter. Thank you for coming. If anyone has any questions or any comments, we welcome them. Yeah. Well, Deb, I want to thank you and your colleagues for sharing such an important part of um, nursing. Um, you know, sometimes we get caught up in the technical pieces of what we do and the documentation. But what you speak to, what you've spoken to today, is really the heart of nursing. And as you said, developing relationships and really acknowledging <coughs> personal aspect of um, what we provide each other, actually. Um, so thank you. Um, I thought this was fabulous. And um, I appreciate your willingness to share what was obviously very personal for all of you. And thank you. Um, thank you. Anyone else have any comments or questions? <clears throat> Anyone want to be next to do interdisciplinary grand rounds? I do think we don't do this enough. We don't share. We don't reflect. We don't. Um, the reason we're here is for for patients, for people, and uh, we get very caught up in our tasks. We can't say that enough. It's just, um, and also we have some amazing colleagues. I mean, I've seen some uh, very good people that I know and love leave. And I'm sad about that. But at the same time, there's still a lot of really good people that work here. There's a lot of really good physicians that are committed and sound and evidence-based. And same with nurses. I mean, there's good about, there's good people everywhere. And we just need to celebrate it. Yes? This was a wonderful presentation. I'm just wondering, did anybody sort of change how they're doing their work now because of how Louisa was? I mean, do you do things differently now because of Louisa? Personally, I think about my encounters with patients a lot differently now. Um, I used to have, I think I used to have a preconceived sort of an assessment that I think I know what your problem is. <laughs> and, and now I think what she brought to me is that I don't, um, I don't know where you're coming from. I don't know what brought you here. And I, I want to hear and learn more from my patients now, I think, because of her. But don't let me speak for all my team. Debbie, you guys should be up you here. You told a story about what she taught you about the um, silence. That's true. Can and I hope that? I can tell the story without crying, because that's why I quickly stepped it down before. <laughs> but so, yeah. So as a nurse, I'm always thinking I can help. I can be part of fixing something for you, because that's what we do. 
Um, and what Louisa taught me is that I, there was nothing I could do. There was nothing I had to offer. There was nothing except being present with her. And also she taught me the value of silence when I was sitting with her and Dr. Godier and her husband. Uh, and he's saying, you need to call your family together, Louisa. There's nothing more. And she is fighting. She's saying, there is more. You'll give me more. There's got to be medicine. And just your ability to sit with her and, and be present and hold her hand and be patient and take it in. And I'm thinking, give her something. <laughs> and um, I felt her fight. She, she was a fighter. And then I saw her like four or five days later when I was called to the infusion room to see her. And as much as I felt her fight, I felt her peace. And that's when her son was sitting on the bed with her. I was sitting on the bed with her. Her husband standing by her head. And she was, I felt her peace. And that's when she said, you know that song by Bonnie Raitt, to believe in this living is no way, no way to go. And her son brought the song up on his cell phone and we, we all just sat there and, and cried. And yeah, so there's value in silence. I, I don't have the art of that completely down yet. I can't let it all go. Um, I, I still have a great desire to help. Yeah.